Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. We'd like to start a study on the the value and the power of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Here the first word we're introduced here, the first word to which we're introduced is atonement. So one thing that the blood does for us, it makes atonement. In the Old Testament that word is kafar. If you want to spell that, that's K-A-P-H-A-R. Kafar. And here in Brooklyn, you're quite familiar with Yom Kippur, no? The Day of Atonement, Kippur comes from the same word, Kafar, Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. <coughs> the first usage of the word in the Bible, and people who do word studies in the Bible place some importance on its first usage. Any new word introduced, especially in a theological term. The first use of it is rather interesting in Genesis chapter 16, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. For God said to Noah, verse 13, and God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Here the word pitch is from this word kefar. So it was a covering, covering without and a covering within to, of course, protect the ark from taking in water, becoming water soaked or leaking and sinking. So the word kefar itself means to cover. Which gives us, of course, a thought that the blood of Jesus Christ is covering our sins, covering our iniquities. It's also translated in our King James Bible to reconcile. Reconcile means to make two people to be at peace or to remove the enmity between two people. The word atonement sometimes is broken down in the English, it works only in English, of course, but it does spell out that way, at one meant. In other words, taking two people that are at enmity and bringing them into agreement, reconciling, at one meant. That's not the root meaning so much as to cover. However, it is a fairly accurate description also of this concept of reconciling. And we have the word used in reconciling in Leviticus chapter 6. Verse 30. And no sin offering whereof any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of the congregation to reconcile with all in the holy place shall be eaten and shall be burnt in the fire. So here again, there's reconciliation, 
made in the sin offering. When a man sins, when the congregation is guilty of sin, it comes to their knowledge, then they have to bring their sin offering. And as it says in verse 29, this is a most holy offering before the Lord. That is to say, of course, the Lord knows our sin anyway, but when we recognize our sin and when we come and seek atonement with God, seek reconciliation from God, seek a forgiveness, a pardon from God, seek a covering over of our guiltiness in the eyes of God, that's the most holy offering before the Lord. And here's called reconciling, reconciling with all in the holy place. That's that same word, kephar. Also chapter 8, Leviticus chapter 8, verse 15 This is the consecration of Aaron and his sons. We can read verse 14. And he brought the bullock for the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bullock for the sin offering. In other words, confessing their sins over the bullock, transferring their sins to the bullock, or transferring the guilt, at least, of their sins to the bullock. And he slew it, and Moses took the blood and put it upon the horns of the altar, round about with his finger, and purified the altar, and poured the blood at the bottom of the altar, and sanctified it to make reconciliation upon it. So here this reconciliation again is the word kephar, or atonement. This is one thing that the blood does. It reconciles between man and God. It covers our guiltiness. And also in chapter 16, verse 20, Leviticus chapter 16, Verse 20, and when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And of course, the live goat is sent away, as you know, bearing the sins of the people. So here the holy place and the tabernacle and the altar have to be reconciled or toned for. So everything has to be atoned with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no atonement. There's no reconciliation between man and God. There's no covering of our uncleanness. So the first thing we see that the blood of Jesus Christ does, it makes atonement and reconciles. We might look up at some, some of the words where atonement itself is used. Exodus 29 Verses 36 and 37. Now this is the ram of consecration, beginning verse, uh, let's begin verse 31. And thou shalt take the ram of the consecration and seethe his flesh in the holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And they shall eat those things wherewith the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But a stranger shall not eat thereof, because they are holy. And if aught of the flesh of the consecrations, or of the bread, remain unto the morning, then thou shalt burn the remainder with fire, it shall not be eaten, because it is holy. And thus shalt thou do unto Aaron and to his sons, according to all the things that I have commanded thee. Seven days shalt thou consecrate them. And thou shalt offer every day a bullock for a sin offering for atonement. And thou shalt cleanse the altar. 
when thou hast made an atonement for it, and thou shalt anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar, and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy. So here in the use of the blood to make atonement again, it's the ram of consecration, but the atonement is also for the altar, and it becomes most holy by virtue of the blood being applied to it. So atonement is not only a covering for our sins, it's a reconciling with God, and it's a capacitating something to stand in the presence of God as most holy, all because of the blood that is applied. Look in Exodus also chapter 30. Verse 10, And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year, and the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in a year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. So here the blood is repeatedly applied to enable the uh, service of God to remain holy unto the Lord continual atonement upon the altar. And also verses 15 and 16. Here we have the money of atonement. The half shekel we'll give here beginning in verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after the number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. This they shall give every one that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is twenty giras, and half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. Every one that passeth among them that are numbered from twenty years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls, and thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and thou shalt appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. Now what would be your understanding of the meaning of this half-shekel atonement money? Why was, why was the money required when actually there was a blood that made atonement? God has given us the blood of the sacrifice to make an atonement for our souls. Without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement. Why was the money then required as a price of atonement? Of course, one thing comes to mind right away is from Peter, where he says, we are not redeemed with uh, corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So in contrast, of course, in the New Testament, it tells us we're not redeemed the price of money. But were the Old Testament saints, were they redeemed by the price of money? Was there any saving virtue in this? Remember when they were brought out of Egypt? Did they have to pay any money when they were brought out of Egypt? What brought them out of that destruction at that time? It was the blood of the Passover lamb, right? In fact, did God take any money from them or did God give money to them? God gave money to them. So, uh, money itself has no redemptive power. But what's the meaning of this price of redemption here then? 
Was this money actually redeeming them? What was this money doing? Uh huh. They didn't pay the money, and the plague would come upon them. Now, does this mean that they had to pay the money every so often, or the plague would come? When did they have to pay the money? Ah, were they supposed to number the people? Huh? When, when David numbered the people, uh, the plague came on him, didn't it? Uh, in fact, it came upon all the people. Maybe because he forgot to collect the redemption money. So this might not be so much a matter of redeeming the souls of the people as redeeming the ones that are doing the counting. In other words, if we start to if we start to boast and brag about how many we are, we better cover ourselves under the blood. Huh? <laughs> In other words, we better have an atonement for our pride of numbering ourselves. This is one thought. I'm not saying this is the final answer on this subject, but in King David's case, when he wanted to number the people, what did Joab say? Yeah, he says, let there be ever so many. I mean, who cares how many there are? But why did David want to know the number? Probably, I presume, because he wanted to see how vast a kingdom he ruled over. Have you ever numbered how many people you have in your congregation? Or when you're talking to another pastor or talking to somebody else from another faith home, do you ever like to tell them how many people came to the meeting? <laughs> now, when it comes to workers, you ever like to figure out how many workers we have? Or count how many people there are in the photograph? Or do you ever feel checked when you start thinking about those things? Well, I think we I think we better have some kind of atonement when we start doing things like that, uh, counting numbers and noticing how many we are, how many we have, and boasting and bragging about such things as that. And so our our attitudes may have to be redeemed. But one thing is interesting in verse fifteen: the rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. So I think this would take us back, of course, to the blood of Jesus Christ. As Peter says, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So whatever it is, to be right with God, we need to be under the blood. And I think if our hearts and minds are under the blood, we won't be counting each other and boasting and bragging about how many or who or whatever we are. But these are various uses of the word kephar. That's all we're showing in the Bible, what the word atonement means, reconcile, atonement. There's also an interesting use in Genesis chapter 32, verse 20. <clears throat> now this is where Jacob was returning and about to meet with Esau. And of course he was afraid to meet with Esau because the last news he had from Esau was that Esau wanted to kill him. So a bit he's afraid, he's afraid you know, so he puts his goods and his children and his wives in different groups and has a group of cattle to go on ahead to be like an offering to appease Esau. See verse 13, and he lodged there that same night and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau, his brother, 200 she-goats and 20 he-goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch camels with their coats, 40 kine, and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses, and 10 foals. 
and he delivered them into the hand of his servants. Every drove by themselves and said unto his servants, Pass over before me and put a space betwixt drove and drove. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau, my brother, meeteth thee, and asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou, and whither goest thou, and whose are these before thee? Then thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my lord Esau. Behold, also he is behind us. And so commanded he the second and the third, and all that followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall you speak unto Esau when you find him. And say ye moreover, Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goeth before me, and afterward I will see his face peradventure. He will accept of me. So here the word appease again is the word kefar. So another thought of atonement again is to reconcile, to make peace between enemies, to appease wrath and anger, and to bring about a merciful encounter between the two. It's also used in the sense of being merciful and forgiving. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 8. Now here's a case where uh, the murderer, or a man fleeing, charged the murderers, brought into the, the city, of course, and uh, if he's guilty, they have to kill him. But uh, otherwise, here we'll read from, we'll read from verse 1. If one be found slain in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it, lying in the field, that it be not known who hath slain him, then thy elders and thy judges shall come forth, and they shall measure unto the cities which are round about him that is slain. And it shall be that the city which is next unto the slain man, even the elders of that city, shall take an heifer which hath not been wrought with, and uh, which hath not drawn in the oak. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer unto the rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown, and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priests and the sons of the Levites shall come near for them that the Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. And all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not this innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge, for the blood shall be forgiven them. So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. So rather, here's a case of a person who's found slain. No one knows exactly who did it. And so they measure around, find the closest city, and here the elders have to declare their innocence. Innocence in both aspects. One, they had not committed the crime. Second, they had not seen it. They did not know who was guilty. And, of course, blood is shed, and this blood makes atonement for them. And in verse 8, you have the word kephar used twice. First is, be merciful. That's kephar, O Lord, unto thy people. The last part of the verse says, and the blood shall be forgiven them. Kephar again. So here it's a, an atonement, a covering, a reconciliation, a removing of guilt. And even for an innocent person, he also needs to have this kephar, this atonement between him and the Lord. Now we said that the original meaning is to cover when they pitched the ark within and without. Here's another case where the sense of covering is used also. 
Exodus chapter 25, verse 15 and on. It's talking about the ark here. This, well, actually, beginning, we're beginning of verse 16. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee, and thou shalt make a mercy seat, or a covering, or a lid for the ark. So the name of the covering, the name of the lid of the ark, is Kapore, K-A-P-P-O-R-E-T-H. K-A-P-P-O-R-E-T-H. But this is from the word kephar. It's spelled different, pronounced a bit different, but it's actually the same root word meaning. So here it's a covering, here it's a lid, but interesting enough in our King James Bible it's called the mercy seat, which is sort of a fanciful term. The word mercy and the word seat are not in the Hebrew, it's just the word kephar. But the thought is, it is a covering, it is a protection, it is a hiding, but it's also a place where mercy and reconciliation, propitiation, atonement is found. And of course, you, wherever you read about the mercy seat, on down in these verses, following other places, it's that same word from the word kephar, the actual word being kaporet, the mercy seat. Now, this word mercy seat in the New Testament, of course, is a Greek word, but we can go right to the same thing here in the mercy seat, the covering of the ark. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. And here in chapter 9, you know, he's speaking about the tabernacle with its various furnishings, its various parts. Verse, verse 3 says, And after the second veil of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat. So here the same word used in the King James Bible called the mercy seat. Now in Greek, let me spell this word out because we're going to see where this word is used elsewhere. This is halasterian, uh, I'm sorry, hilasterian, spelled out like h i L A S T E R I O N Hilasteria. This is the word for mercy seat. But this word is also used concerning the blood of Jesus Christ in another common biblical word, but not understood by common use usage in English. Romans chapter three, verse twenty-five. But it will give us more understanding, of course, of what the word atonement means. He, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 25. For God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So here the word hilasterian is translated propitiation. The word propitiation is the same word translated mercy seat. So this puts the word atonement in the Old Testament with propitiation in the New Testament. They both mean the same. We don't use this word in common English except to propitiate. You ever heard the word 
used in common English to propitiate. It means when two people are fighting or angry one with another and you want to reconcile them, you propitiate them. So it has again to do with the word reconciliation. In fact, the same word, Elasterian, is used, reconciliation. Look again back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved Christ to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. To make reconciliation, hilasterion, or to make atonement, to make propitiation, to make a mercy seat. So these, this is all accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's through faith in his blood. We read in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Through faith in his blood, this atonement is made, reconciliation is made, peace is made, and we find the mercies of God. Now this is when we have faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Even in the Old Testament, they were to exercise faith when they, slid the, when they slew the animal. And when the blood was applied, they actually, the theologians uh, judge, and I think it's proper, that as they were slaying those animals in the Old Testament, the real value of the blood was that they, consciously or unconsciously, were believing on the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. They were believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that had the blood of Christ not been shed at Calvary, the blood of those animals of olden times would have been valueless. But they had value only because they were looking forward to Calvary. They were representing Calvary. And so to speak, when Christ was crucified, then all those Old Testament sacrifices were validated. It's like someone gives you a check. Let's say someone owes you $100, so they give you a check for $100. But you thank them, and you, you then you write them a, a statement saying their debt is canceled. But that piece of paper they gave you, of course, is valueless until you take it to the bank and cash it in and get real spendable money in its place. Nevertheless, the check is of value. In fact, if you read on the even the bills you get, even the dollar bills you get are valueless. They're just so much piece of paper printed with green or black ink or whatever. But on the bill it say this bill is is or there is a there is on deposit in the Treasury of the United States this much gold. So even that piece of paper has value only because it's backed up by something of real and tangible worth. So like that, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament were like checks or they were like drawings or paintings or like bills they were like a promissory note of value only against the reality which was the blood of Jesus Christ shed at Calvary so it's through faith in the blood it's the faith that makes the blood of value so we need to exercise faith in the blood of Jesus Christ and the same propitiation is given to us in 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 I mean, we emphasize the need to have faith because without faith you cannot please God. Without faith, nothing really works. So the blood may have been shed, but until we have faith in it, it may not bring value into our lives, as I think we can see from this verse here, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, or verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 
and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Here again, the word propitiation is elasterian. Now, I think we need to see two things here. One is, my little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. So he's not talking about willful sinning. There is no sacrifice for willful sinning. He's talking about sins of ignorance. The blood of bulls and goats, as well as the blood of Jesus Christ, were shed for sins of ignorance. Christ died for the sins of the ignorance of the people. God passed over this time of ignorance. He passed over, of course, only because of the efficacy of of the shed blood of Christ. But we are not to sin, but if we sin, and we all do, of course. So our the, the, the purpose of writing these things is not to excuse sin or tolerate sin, nor certainly not to encourage sin. One theologian has judged, and I think rightly, that if we can go right on sinning and the blood goes right on covering and atoning, then the blood of Christ becomes contributory to sinning which, of course, could not be so because it was shed just for the opposite purpose, to cease sinning. And I think when we realize that one value of the blood is that it shows us the seriousness and the penalty of sinning, that should work in our, in our hearts and our minds, a, a new attitude about sinning. When we realize that Christ had to die, suffer and die because of our sins, that should produce a turning from sin on our part. So this is not to uh, encourage sin in any sense of the word, but nevertheless, if we should sin, and we all do through ignorance and through weakness and frailty and and the tempter and one thing or another, then, praise God, we do have an intercessor. We have an advocate, and he's interceding, of course, on the basis of his blood. The Bible says his blood speaketh better things than the blood of Abel. So Christ went into the most holy place, the presence of God, on our behalf with his own blood, reconciling, making making reconciliation. And he is the propitiation, of course, through his blood. He is a propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now here we can see the necessity of faith in the blood. We can actually preach on the street corner and tell everybody, Hey, we have some good news to tell you. Your sins are forgiven you. You drunkard across the street, you murderer, you prostitute over there. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, we can say that because it's true. There has been made an atonement for their sins. But if they don't believe it, it will not work any value in their lives. But if they believe it, that should bring about repentance, a new heart, cleansing of guilt, And the ability to come to God with a clear conscience as a child of God and cry, Abba, Father. So, in one sense, he has propitiated the sins of the whole world. He doesn't have to come back and die every time a sinner repents. In fact, sometimes when I lead a sinner to repentance, I sometimes not only say, lead him in a prayer, Lord, forgive me my sins, but Lord, thank you for forgiving me my sins. Because it's not a matter of just pleading, it's a matter of recognizing. For example, the Catholics, they may plead a thousand times over, be merciful to be a sinner. Isn't there some kind of automatic prayer? They pray like that, the rosary or whatever it is. They may pray a thousand times and yet nothing works because they don't believe. 
But no sooner you believe that then the power of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ begins to work in our lives. So he is a propitiation in one sense for the sins of the whole world, but particularly for us. As the Bible says in other places, he's the savior of all men, especially those that believe, <laughs> especially because it works in our lives when we do believe. Also chapter 4, verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The hilasterion for our sins. In other words, making a covering, making a reconciliation. And it's interesting, this word, the same word, hilasterion, is also translated to be merciful. Look in Luke chapter 18, verse 13. A well-known verse, but it's interesting that the same concept is used here. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here, be merciful is the translation of the word hilasterion. So he's not doing as so many would do, is, well, God, you know I'm a sinner. I'm going on sinning day by day by day. He says, you just forget about it. Forgive me. It's not that. It's He's crying out, Lord, make a reconciliation for me. Lord, let there be a an atonement. Let there be a uh, an appeasement. Let there be a reconciliation between you and me. Whether he understood that theologically or not, he's using this word. And probably being a Jew, Old Testament times, he would have used the word kephar. Lord, let there be a day of atonement. Let there be a blood sacrifice shed for me. Let there be a propitiation between you and me. And also in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more forever. This be merciful is Hilasterion. So the very foundation of the New Testament is quoted here in Hebrews chapter 8 from verse 9 to 12, is that God will be merciful to our unrighteousness. So this is the first value we see, or the first operation we see of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's to bring the mercies of God, covering us over our unrighteousness, covering our iniquities, as King David said, blessed is the man whose sins are covered. I think we all know that verse, although the same Greek word is not there. It's the same thought in Romans chapter 4. I think it might be well to look at this because there's one more thought brought out here. Romans chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. And we might even begin it. Verse 5. But to him that worketh not. Well, in verse 3, we have to start to get the whole thought here. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the godly, 
his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity, not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. And it goes on to explain how he was justified or counted righteous, yet being uncircumcised. So the whole basis of our salvation is on the mercies of God, is on the kindness and the forbearance and the long-suffering of God. It's that we with no works at all, with nothing to bring before God but our own sins, we bring our sin offering before the God, confessing our sins, then God has provided a propitiation. God has provided the blood of the Lamb. Going back to chapter 3, verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So, because the blood of Jesus Christ was offered on our behalf, God covers our sins, he passes over them, he forgets about them, and he is able to receive us unto himself in reconciliation, in peace, and in mercy. But this is all through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting where Paul is quoting from David here. I think we looked that up one time before when we were studying the condition of the heart. But where's that quoted from? Where are verses 7 and 8 quoted from? Psalm 32, 1 and 2. What's the additional thought that's added there? If you look again, maybe you've forgotten. Psalm 32, 1 and 2. There's one more additional thought there, which I think is very essential to understand how God, God's point of view in this whole matter of atonement and reconciliation. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. So, Genuine faith, sincerity, and repentance, of course, are necessary for the blood to have its effect in our lives. We don't have to offer works. We don't have to offer money. There's nothing we can bring. But we, have, we come by faith, faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. But this faith must be sincere faith, unfeigned faith, as Paul says in Timothy. And any hypocritical approach unto the blood, or you can sing the power in the blood, and you can say the blood, the blood, the blood, it will have no effect at all without genuine faith. Genuine faith comes from a repentant heart. When you really see your sins and see the uh, death of Jesus Christ in our, st our stead, a sincere person will, of course, repent and cry out like the publican did, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, cover my sin. Lord, pardon my sin. Lord, atone for my sin. Reconcile my sin. And then, of course, the answer will come that that's been done through the blood of Jesus Christ. But God wants us to have faith in that blood. We should never remember our former sins. I remember their sins and iniquities no more forever. And one thing is certainly a poisonous death in the life of so many of God's people. And we've encountered it face to face in these last few weeks. 
is something which I say sincerely is appalling and frightening to the depth of our spirit is. We have found people still grieving over former things. Either condemning themselves because of former sins or feeling grief because of sins others have committed against them. Self-pity or remembering former faults. I want to say all of that is because of a lack of faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience from sin. We'll study that more as we go on. But there must be a complete and total forgetting of those things that are past. If we understand Calvary's sacrifice, if we understand the power of the blood, there is a forgetting, there is a remission, there is a release from former things, our sins and other sins. Very clearly it is stated that if we remember other people's sins, of course, then God will have to remember ours also. So that would take us into the next aspect of the blood of Christ. This was all under the first aspect, the atonement of the propitiation. And we'll study the next aspect right from this Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, a Philisterian, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now here we come to a second theological concept. Remission. And in the margin you probably find a little another thought there, passing over. So it's one thing to cover over, and very similar to that is to pass over. Now of course we come to the concept of the blood of the Passover lamb. When God saw the blood, he passed over in condemnation and guilt. In the book of Acts it says he winked at in Spanish, it says he passed over. In English, it says he winked at. So, here we come the word remission. It's quite, quite related to the former word, but slightly different. And, of course, we remember, we won't need to look this up, but you can write it down in Matthew 26, 28, when Jesus was serving the Last Supper to his disciples. He said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for the remission of sins. And it's interesting how remission is, there's importance placed on remission. Look in Mark chapter 1, verse 4. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now the Greek word we're studying here is aphasis, a p h. E-S-I-S, I-S, I'm sorry, A-P-H-E-S-I-S, aphasis. It is used for the English word forgiveness, but also freedom from, also liberty from. And it comes from another Greek word, which means to send forth. So it's something which is remitted, which is released, which is given liberty, which is sent out, sent away. Now here, baptism is related in this ministry 
We have remission of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. But baptism is also for the remission of sins, baptism of repentance. So here the blood of Jesus Christ works together with our repentance. And baptism, of course, exemplifies or pictures, drives home into our consciousness this, this aspect of the blood of Christ, which is an actually a washing away of our sins. See, when you go down in the water, the old man, the old former life is washed away. Therefore, to come up out of the water and to look back and remember our former sins or someone else's sins is to deny the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, with the blood, this is not just an optional benefit of the blood. It's a necessary benefit of the blood for salvation. So if we can yet in any way grieve over, remember former sins, then we'll find as we go on studying this, that our sins are still clinging to us. The blood has not worked in that area of our lives. And our remembrance or our conscience is not yet cleansed as it ought to be from the blood. So if we can yet in any way grieve over and remember former sins, then we'll find as we go on studying this, that our sins are still clinging to us. The blood has not worked in that area of our lives. And our remembrance or our conscience is not yet cleansed as it ought to be from the blood. Look in Luke chapter 1, verse 77. This is an essential part of our salvation. As I say, it's not an optional additional benefit. Uh, Luke chapter 1, we'll read from 76. Well, we even read earlier, it's being a 74. Or even 73. Well, we've got to go further up. <laughs> we'll read from... It's, of course, all the prophecy of Zechariah, but read from 71, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light unto them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. So all of this is possible, and this salvation is possible and effective in our lives, only by the remission of our sins. If our sins are only covered and they're not remitted, if they're only winked at and not taken away, our salvation is not complete. And so if we rejoice that Christ died for us and that God has forgiven us, and yet we still have remembrance of sin, the blood of Jesus Christ has not done its cleansing work. Because... Where there is remission of sins, there is no more remembrance of sin, the Bible says. There is no more sacrifice for sin. The work is finished. And as I say, if we're continually conscious of our sins or of the sins of another, then the blood of Jesus Christ has not been allowed to do its full work. So we must earnestly 
Seek faith in the blood until all remembrance of former things are forgotten. In the sense of deliverance, look at Luke 4, 18. Here the same word is used. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. That's the same word, aphasis. To preach remission, deliverance. That means a releasing. The bond is no longer there. The thing is no longer on top of you. Its grip is no longer effective in your life. Its dominion over you is gone. You are free from it to preach deliverance to the captives. Now, we, we know what it is to have a demon tormenting us. And when the demon is cast out, we are free. And I have found that where there is still a remembrance of former things, there is a bondage. We had one sister related to Ruthie Warby, who came to us one time. Doesn't come to, did not come to our church, but in her father's church. And uh, she wanted deliverance. So I asked Sister Jill Barlock to go and pray with her. Shortly, Jill came to my room and said, come quickly. The demon has manifested itself. So it came, and she said it was a horrible, hideous thing. Now, this young girl was in the Lord's work. She was living there in the church and helping her uncle, Brother Farb, in the ministry. And a very nice girl. And uh, so I said, well, what, what is it? She said, they, they did not know. So I began to pray for her, and sure enough, the demon manifested itself. Quite a hideous thing. And... Uh, tried to cast it out, it would not come out. Very often when demons don't come out, when they're commanded to, it's because God wants us to find out what it is to help the person in their repentance. So he said, demon, what is your name? It would not give its name. So then uh, I didn't know what to do, and I prayed, and a thought came to me, I said, sister, do you know what it is? She did not know. And then I prayed again, I said, Lord, now what do we do? So then a thought came, and I said, sister, uh, does anything of your former life come back to your mind from time to time? She said, no. She said, oh, yeah. She says, strange thing. Whenever people are telling me their problems, I often end up by telling them what are my problems. And I always wonder, why do I do that anyway? I says, well, what is it? She says, well, my uh, my uncle, Brother Harvey, my uncle, he... He loves all the other people there in his house more than he loves me. My husband, he loves everybody else more than he loves me. And my brother, he loves everybody else more than he loves me. My father, he loves everybody else more than he loves me. I said, well, what do you mean? She says, well, one time my father promised to buy me a wristwatch and he never bought it for me. She started to pucker up and cry and howl. And I began to feel sorry for her. And Jill said, that's the demon. I said, I think you're right. I said, you demon of self-pity come out. And out it came with a big screech. And she got so happy. She just praised God and smiled after her. She said, I'll never feel sorry for myself again. <laughs> so her inability to forget former things was a bondage. And a demon had gotten in there and laid hold upon her. And I've seen this thing of self-pity rise again and again and again, including just the other day here. 
And that's all because we have not allowed the blood to cleanse our consciousness, our awareness of sin, be it ours or someone else's. Look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 4. I should say again going up from verse 12 giving thanks unto the father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sin I hear the word forgiveness is the same word aphasis but you see, it's related to delivered from the power of darkness and the ability to dwell in the kingdom of his dear son, the son of his love, in whom we also have redemption through, the, through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, the aphasis of sins, the freedom from, the remission from, translated other places, remission. Now let's look in Mark chapter 3 where the same word is used again. Mark chapter 3, verse 29. Verses 28 and 29. Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath n never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Here the word forgiveness is a phasis. So it's not just a remembrance, but the thing shall cleave to him. That's what I see here. That sin shall cleave to him. You cannot be released from it. Like you're bitten by a serpent and you can't shake the thing off. It'll cleave to you forever. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. We're looking up different uses of the word aphasis. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So all this is one purpose why Christ came and shed his blood, that as a response to our repentance, and especially our obedience and water baptism, there is a release from, a forgiveness from, a remission of our sins. Chapter 13, verse 38, continuing in the book of Acts. Chapter 13, verse 38. Be known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of of sins. Again, the aphasis, the remission, the release from sin. Chapter 26, verse 18. Here verse 16, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in thee, which those things in the which I will appear unto thee, 
delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom thou hast sent thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. The faces of their sins. So here again it's related to coming out of darkness, coming into light, being released from the power of Satan unto God by the remission, the forgiveness, the release, the liberty from our sins. And going back to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 49, beginning up here in verse 47. Remember the story how Jesus went in to eat at Simon's house, and this unclean woman came in and began to wash uh, his feet. And uh, Simon was indignant. Verse 39, and when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known also in what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed him five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when he had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time that I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And they that sat in meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. So here amongst all the people assembled, she was the worst of sinners. But the Lord lets her know that her sins are forgiven, it faces, her sins are remitted her. They're no longer accredited to her account. They will no longer be remembered because she's weeping at his feet. She's repentant. And of course, as I say, all of this is through the value of his blood, which was soon to be shed. But this Pharisee, looking at things from the point of human worth, judged that he was better than she. Now, this is where all self-pity comes from. We judge that we are better than the other. Once we have been to Calvary with a full realization of the sinners that we are and have been cleansed in his blood, it is impossible to feel grieved over another man's faults because the first realization that comes to us is, well, he is better than I, esteeming each other better than ourselves. You cannot go to Calvary with a real encounter with the blood of Christ without coming away with a total appreciation of your total depravity and a full appreciation of his wonderful grace. 
Therefore, when you look at any other human being, you could not possibly imagine that he is as bad as you are. For one reason, you haven't seen all of his wicked sins as you have seen your own. So, our ability to forgive one another is based on our having been washed in the blood of Christ at the foot of the cross. And if we in any sense are conscious of another man's sins, we are irritated with another man's faults, and we feel in any way indignant that we have been bothered by another man's transgressions, it means simply that we have not been fully cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We have not, or we have drifted away from Calvary's fountain. Because all irritation with others, all irritation with others, is based on the judgment that we are better than they. And that's a false judgment showing ignorance of Calvary. And as we go on studying the word Ephesus, we will see that's exactly what he deals with here in Matthew chapter 6. We were studying, I think last time I was here, about the unprofitable servant, how when he came in from the field working, he wasn't even given anything to eat or drink. He was told to serve them the more, never thanked or appreciated. Then the Lord said, likewise, when you have done all that's expected of you, say of yourself, I'm an unprofitable servant. Now this is possible only by having been to Calvary. We realize that we're just nothing. We're but sinners. This woman, now this Pharisee had this false, but this woman wasn't looking around. She wasn't saying, well, I'm an unclean woman, but this Pharisee, he's not any good either. Yesterday I saw him talking to an unclean woman on the street, or yesterday I saw him doing this, that, other. This woman was so completely, completely overwhelmed with the consciousness of her own sinfulness that she could do nothing but weep. And likewise, she was so completely overwhelmed and absorbed in the presence of Jesus Christ, that she could do nothing but kiss his feet. Now that is redemption. Hating self and loving Christ. There's no room in that at all to judge one another or make comparisons amongst one another. So here in Matthew chapter 6, the word, if it, um, the word aphasis is used several times. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, this is the word aphasis, which means more than just a hum whole type, well, I forgive you. It's a release of remembrance. We're asking for an atonement. We're asking for a propitiation. We're asking for a remission of our sins as we remit, forgive other people their sins. Verse 14, for if ye forgive men, again, aphasis, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So the blood is able to do its work only when there is a genuine repentance before God. Forgive us our debts. And where it works, there is a as we forgive others their debtors. So if 
in your consciousness at any times, though it be ever so deep, even in your subconscious, there is a grieving over another man's sins. There is remembrance of former faults done against you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the New English Bible, it says, Love keeps no score. I have thoroughly enjoyed that translation. Love keepeth no score. Now, don't we expect and want God to wipe our slate clean in heaven? When he does that, then we have to wipe our slates clean too. And that's one of the concepts of the word remission. Now, suppose you've written on the blackboard, huh? And you take an eraser and wipe it off. It's gone, isn't it? That's how clean gone our sins are when we have faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's been erased. You can write something else there, but that thing is gone. You, you can pick up all the dust off the floor and you never put that word back together on the board again, could you? <laughs> it's gone. And that's how fully we have to forgive one another's sins. And this is possible for us to do it when we're at the foot of the cross being washed in the blood. But what I'm, I'm, I'm saying is, I'm conscious that as you cling to the foot of the cross and allow the blood to cleanse you, there is a release from these things. There is a release. There's no doubt in my mind and my experience. I can have proven it. There is power in the blood of Jesus Christ for remission of sins. And if sins are only covered over and the thing is still clinging to you, to me, that's a pretty sorry or pretty unsatisfactory salvation. That would be good that there'd be no death condemnation upon us. But I thank God that his saving grace through the blood of Christ is for the remission of sins, a complete and total release. Look in St. Matthew chapter 18. Twenty-one to twenty-five. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Here the same word, aphasis. Till seven times? Jesus said unto him, I said unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Verse twenty-five. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and payment should be made, and so forth. You know the rest of the story. Verse 26, the servant fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience upon me, and I will pay thee all. And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. Loosed him. Forgave him our faces. So, the blood of Jesus Christ is for a loosing of the dead. And I want to, I think we'll close here this morning. It's a bit late. We've just started our study. We'll continue on. But I want to urge each and every one of you to know yourself in the light of God's word. And if you are capable of despising any other person, if you are capable of grieving over another person's uh faults against you, if you are capable of remembering any former iniquity, either your own or anybody else's, you need to go to the cross of Calvary and be cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is one of the fundamental benefits of the blood of Jesus Christ, a remission of all former things. 
where there is remission of sin, there is no more remembrance of sin. The former things are forgotten. They shall never come back to mind anymore. So do not settle for any lesser salvation than that. Do not avoid the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's all read together this story here in Matthew chapter 18, so important. <clears throat> let's read from 21 on down to the end of the chapter. We'll all read together. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto the Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Seest thou not, shouldest thou not also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth with him, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. So he grabbed him by the throat and said, Pay me that thou owest. <clears throat> or he clenched his fist and said, Why didn't you bring me my coffee? Or he grabbed the knife and said, I feel like hitting you because you didn't give me my breakfast this morning. <laughs> or you wept and cried and said, Well, two years ago you were so cruel to me. Or you said so and so. These things deliver us over to the tormentors, and we will not be released until we forgive. <clears throat> now, this forgiveness is through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. So run to the cross, cleave to the foot of the cross. Take a good shower in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let it cleanse you from all remembrance of your own sins. Now, that's why we remember our own sins. That's why we feel not fully accepted the psychologists say, and I believe it is right, I judge it by experience in many, many lives we've dealt with. One of the greatest human problems is the feeling of rejection. That is true. Because all mankind have been rejected by God. Our sins have separated between us and God. He's hid his face from us. So there is a total rejection of humanity. The Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You can't get much more rejection than that. So people have a problem of rejection. That's why we reject each other and we reject ourselves. That's why if you are to love your neighbor as you what? As you love yourself. 
you have to be able to love yourself to love your neighbor. And all feeling of unworthiness, all feeling of inferiority, all feeling of rejection, all feeling of self-condemnation, and all feeling of despising others, because they're all related together, comes from not having been to Calvary, not having been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Once we come under the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, there is a release from guilt, from condemnation, from remembrance. There is an atonement, a reconciliation with the Father in which we can run into his presence and jump up on his lap and grab him around the neck and say, I'm a father. And the ability to go look at our enemy right in the face and say, I love you, brother. And the ability to forgive and forget and to be forgiven and to be forgotten in, in the sense of unworthiness and all feeling of rejection and unworthiness is gone and we have utter confidence and boldness to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. So tomorrow we'll continue studying other elevators of the blood but let's spend a few minutes in prayer and ask God to take us back to Calvary again for a new, new bathing in the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.25, we might read this in context to see how there's just no other way of salvation at all. Beginning in verse, verse 20, shall we say, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be, the, be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Let's all read together 325. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So today we want to go on to the next concept. And under remission, of course, we had deliverance and forgiveness. The same word is translated forgiveness in Colossians 1.14. But now we want to go on to another word called redemption. Ephesians 1.7. Ephesians 1.7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In whom we have redemption. Now, this word redemption is rather well known to us in, in English in the sense you have, you redeem something. Now, maybe none of you have ever hawked anything at a hawk shop, but a hawk shop is a place where you, when you need money, you go and pawn something of value that you have. Let's say you have a guitar. Take this guitar down to a hawk shop, of which there are many in New York, and you put it in, and the man gives you $10 and gives you a little coupon. Well, within a certain period of time, supposedly, you take your coupon back and give him back the $10, plus maybe another 10 more, and you get your guitar back. If you don't come back in a certain length of time, 
then he'll sell the guitar and you come back and it'll be gone. Even sometimes when you come back within the allotted time, it's gone. If you could sell it for a good price, you'll sell it. But you redeem that coupon or you redeem your coupons on your cereal or something. Go get something for it. So redeeming means to buy back. So we are brought back to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter chapter 1. 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that ye were redeemed. I'm sorry, I'll read that again. I'm a bit wrong. For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. From your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead, and give him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So we were not redeemed with silver and gold, but we were redeemed. By the precious, the priceless, the word precious means priceless, valuable blood of Christ, as of a lamb slain without blemish and without spot. Now here it says we were redeemed, it's interesting to see here, from our vain conversation. Of course, the King James word conversation means manner of living. So we were redeemed from our vain way of living, the way of living which we received by tradition from our fathers. So there are various kinds of sins which fasten themselves upon the nature of man. One is, of course, those sins that we choose to do in our own depraved heart, our state of unbelief. We, we choose to sin. But there's another type of sin which we receive from our parents. And the Bible says death has come upon all men from the days of Adam up until now. Even though we may not sin like Adam sinned, nevertheless, sin reigns because this is transmitted. The curse of the parents is transmitted to the third and the fourth generation. This is just the facts of life. Not that God has done this because he's angry. It's just the way things are. That the parents transmit their way of living to their children. You'll find most children pretty much do the things, the customs they learn from their parents. So there's a lot of just plain vain living which results from us following in our parents' footstep. And it is quite suspected by many also that their demonic uh, inheritances passed on from parents to children. And uh, therefore, when we get saved, we need to be... Uh, redeemed from out of that whole curse that has come upon us generation by generation. Thank God the blessings multiply to the thousandth generation. I think that's why there's salvation in the world today. If only the curse were passed on from generation to generation, this world would have been destroyed long ago because the number of the wicked far outnumber the righteous. But the fact is that the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Isaac and Jacob and the blessing of so many godly people have been multiplied to the thousandth generation, whereas the curses down to the third and fourth generation. 
Whatever that be, we need to be redeemed from what we have inherited from our parents, whether it be an external vain show, vain, vain manner of living, or an internal disposition to ill or some demonic oppression over us. Praise God, by the precious blood of Jesus, we are redeemed from out of it. Revelation 1, 5 also speaks about our being washed from our sins in his blood. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So here the concept is being washed in his blood. And Revelation 5, 9. Of course, when you're washed, that old dirt that was on you from vain manner of living or from whatever source is removed. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Redeemed us to God. We've been bought back to God. That possession which was lost has been bought back. You probably read this little tract that tells the story of a little boy who built a boat. He made a little boat. He spent a lot of time making it, worked very hard to make it. Finally, with great joy, he took it to the little lake in the park with a little string on it. He set it out to sail. And he was so happy watching his little boat sail when all of a sudden a gust of wind came and yanked the string out of his hand and the boat went off and off and off into the lake. And he was so heartbroken that he'd lost his boat. Well, some days later he was walking downtown, went by a pawn shop, and there he found his little boat in the window. And he got so excited, right? And he said, man, that's my boat, that's my boat, give me my boat. The man said, no, no, no. Someone brought that boat here and I bought it from him. Paid five dollars for it. The boy says, no, that's my boat. I made it. Give it back to me. The man says, no, I paid five dollars for it. So the boy had to go home and he worked hard and raked some leaves and cut some grass. Earned five dollars and came back and gave the man the five dollars and he got his boat. Then he took the boat back home. He said, oh, now you're my boat. Two times you're my boat. Once because I made you and once because I bought you. <laughs> so when God redeems us back by the precious blood of Jesus... We're twice-fold his. He created us, and he redeemed us. Now, this Greek word, if you're interested, we're not going to give the Greek word to all these different concepts, but just a few where they have a wealth of meaning, is A-P-O-L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S. -S. Start again. A-P-O-L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S. U-T-R-O-S-I-S, apolutrosis. It comes from the word apo, which means off. A-P-O means like off, to take off. And lutron, L-U-T-R-O-N, which means to loosen. So this gives us an idea of what the word redemption means. You take the burden off. You take the chain off, you take the bondage off, and you loosen the thing, you let it go. See, it was being held by a man who owned it. You bought it away from him, so he had to let take it. He had to take his hand off of it. He had to untie it and let it go. And it's translated many times in the New Testament 
And these are some of the meanings. To deliver, to remit, to ransom, riddance, to get rid of something, riddance, depart, dismiss, divorce. That's an interesting meaning. It means to divorce. <laughs> now that thought is used in Romans chapter 7. We get divorced from our first husband and get married to Christ. Although that's divorce through death, whatever it is. Forgive, let go, loose, put away, send away, release, and set at liberty. So it's a word that's used quite a bit. It means all those various, has all those various shades of meanings. But this all is accomplished for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're delivered out of the hand of our former owner, the Adamic nature, Satan, condemnation, sin, vain manner of living. We're bought back to God, released from our former bondage, so we might come back and belong to God again. But now in the Old Testament, it has, I think, a very interesting meaning. And the Old Testament Hebrew word is ga'al, G-A-W-A-L, G-A-W-A-L, ga'al. And this is one of the compound names of Jehovah. He's called Jehovah Ga'el. Look in Isaiah 49:26. Isaiah 49:26. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood, as with sweet wine. And all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Jehovah Gael, the Lord thy Redeemer. It's also given in Isaiah 54, verse 8. In the little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saying, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Jehovah Gael. Now, this is used in some other places we might look at. The principal place is in the book of Ruth. And here the real meaning. Here in the book of Ruth, this word ga'el is brought out with a very rich picture of its meaning. I think you all know the story of Ruth that in chapter 1, of course, Elimelech, which means God is my king, and he took his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Melon and Kilion, and they went down to Moab, which they were not supposed to do. They weren't supposed to go back to Moab. Why did they go back to Moab? Well, because there was a famine in the land in, of Bethlehem, Judah. So sometimes when we're serving God, we go through dry times. Sometimes we go through need. What do we do at those times? Well, some of us go back to Egypt for help. We'll go down to Moab for help. We had one of our faith homes recently. They're going through a hard time. And so they couldn't, had no food, couldn't pay the rent, so forth and so on. So one of the brothers says, well, I'll go out and get a job and help. <laughs> that thought comes to us. Of course, there's nothing wrong with working. That's honorable. But there's nothing wrong with trusting God either. That's better yet. <laughs> and so... The brother in charge says, no, brother, we'll just stay and wait on God. And then God wonderfully provided in his due time. Well, anyway, that's what Elimelech did. He and took his wife and two sons and went down to Moab. 
And uh, things went really bad for them down there. That's the trouble. And there the two sons died, as you know, and Elimelech died also. God was no longer the king when they got down there. And the two sons, Melon and Kilion, you know, that means sorrow and pining, and that's all they got down there. They died down there too. And poor uh, uh, Naomi in tones then uh, finds herself with two daughters-in-law, Orpha and Ruth. And then she hears word that there's bread back in Bethlehem, Judah again. God has visited his people, which God will always do in the course of time. So then she says, well, I better go back to the land of the Lord again. And so she tells her two daughter-in-laws goodbye, and off she goes. And, of course, you know the famous saying, Ruth says she's going to stay. Uh, verse 16, and chapter 1, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And then, of course, it says here, when she saw that her daughter-in-law was steadfastly minded to go with her, and then she left speaking unto her. So here's how this Gentile girl becomes one of the people of God. And it's, of course, how you and I also become one of the family of God, by a steadfast decision to follow the Lord wherever he goes and to be of his people and to live and die where the Lord lives and dies, going to cross of Calvary, of course. So anyway, they go back then to the land of plenty, back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And here God has visited his people, so they're able to survive there. However, they're very poor, of course. The husband's dead. They've lost their family possessions, the field, the house they had formerly. And uh, so she goes back. She's a poor widow with her daughter-in-law. And so in order to live, she sends the daughter-in-law out into a field to reap, because there was a law given in the Old Testament that when you reap the field, you will not gather up all the grain. You let some fall on purpose. For one purpose is for the poor. And so Ruth would go along behind the gleaners and gather up a little bit of grain and take it home for her and her mother-in-law to eat. And she was working in the field of Boaz, who was a very wealthy man. And when he saw this young lady there and observed how she behaved herself in a very proper manner. She didn't flirt with the men, and when the men tried to flirt with her, she would withdraw herself and sit aside and eat aside and drink aside and so forth. So he had great respect for her watching her, so he told the men to allow a few handfuls to fall on purpose for her, that she might gather a bit more than normally. Of course, all of this is a beautiful picture, how when the Lord sees that we behave ourselves properly and walk circumspectly, He'll allow a few extra handfuls, handfuls on purpose to fall for us to enjoy.